Brian was my best friend. We did everything together. Uh, he was the one that I wanted to be with all the time. We could not wait to have kids, really. And he was the best dad. He was the soccer coach, um, took the kids to tournaments, uh, karate tournaments all the time, dance recitals, you name it. He did it. He was, he was the best. In 2012, Brian began um, experiencing debilitating back pain. And over the course of five years, he had five major surgeries, as well as um, all kinds of pain management procedures, um, none of which gave him any relief whatsoever. And uh, the neurologist finally said that he felt like it was probably permanent nerve damage, and then the next source of protocol would be uh, just pain management from him, for him from that point. So it affected his work, his relationships uh, with me and with the kids. It affected everything. Um, we didn't go anywhere. We didn't do anything. Um, even our regular date nights came to a halt. Um, everything changed. And Brian literally could not think of anything else or attend to anything else but his pain. I lost my best friend in the midst of the pain. Brian believed that uh, God could heal him, either by medicine or by miracle. And he sought hard after God, and he prayed that God would heal him. We prayed. And there were many nights that um, we would cry ourselves to sleep, begging really God to, um, to heal him. And then August 5th, 2017, the pain got too much for Brian, and he took his life. So the reality that I was facing at that time was that the love of my life, my husband, my best friend was gone, and, and that, therefore everything that we had hoped or planned or dreamed together for our future was gone in an instant. But that's where I found the goodness of God, realizing that everything could be stripped away. And He's asking, am I still enough? And at first, those songs that you sing, Jesus, you're enough, I was inside screaming, no, it's not enough. I need my husband back. I need my life back. Psalm 63.3 says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And at that time, the Lord was asking me, Trisha, what do you consider life? How would you define life? Is it being comfortable and having the ease of life? No tragedy, no problems. And he said, my love and intimate relationship is better than anything you could ever put in that blank, even and including a life with your husband, growing old in a rocking chair on a porch. I understood that a little bit. The things that I'm experiencing on a daily basis may not look good. Um, 
They might not look good or even fair, but God is both. He's both good and fair. And uh, in His sovereignty and in His goodness, He's given us the promise of a better life than here on earth. And that is through His Son, Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, He truly cares tenderly, and He shows up. He is alive, and He's active. He takes care of His beloved. He's been a father to me and a husband. He has made Himself known every single day. And I think if we just look for Him, you don't have to go through what I'm going through to know the goodness of God and to see His activity and His love in your life. All you have to do is look around. Well, Trisha said a, a line in there that sh- struck me. Um, What's happening in my life may not look good and fair, but God is both good and fair. And that's what we want to talk about today. How do I reconcile my faith in God and the pain that I'm experiencing or the pain that other people are experiencing out there? It's not easy, obviously. A few weeks ago, we asked you, um, I wish I knew more of what the Bible said about dot, dot, dot. And we're going to spend the next month or so answering some of those questions. And so this week we are answering the question, how do these two things come together? My suffering and my faith in a good God. If you open up your Bible, set it on your lap, turn to the places listed up here on the screen. At least jot them down on your listening guide, which you hopefully received on your way in. Psalm 61 Mark chapter 15, Luke chapter 23, John chapter 19, 1 Peter chapter 2. I've known for a few weeks that this is what we'd be talking about today, and so that sort of leaked out to the people around me, and uh, they have put a tremendous amount of pressure on me, not not intentionally, but what are you going to say, don't screw it up, was essentially uh, what I was hearing from them, because that's a big question. How do I put these two things together, which seemingly do not go together, and then you add on top of that... Uh, Many people in our church are suffering in very significant ways right now. Uh, Even this morning, our elders are coming around, someone with pancreatic cancer. Uh, We have a young man, 15 years old, uh, in the hospital, stage 4 cancer. Uh, There are some very real life, really hard things going on. And so when you take up the question, is God good even if what is happening to me is not good, that is a lot of pressure. And so I thought I'd cheat today, if you don't mind. I want to cheat like the Apostle Paul, who said in 1 Corinthians, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. How do I reconcile my faith in God and my pain? You go to the cross. 
Psalm chapter 61, at the end, you can see it in your listening guide. It says, I take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Inside the tabernacle, God had placed the Ark of the Covenant. So this was a tent that God placed his earthly throne in. And Israel would carry these things around with them as they moved here and there. And on the lid of that Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim with outstretched wings. And what the psalmist is saying is, when I need refuge in this life, I go to your presence. I find underneath your outstretched arms, the wings on your throne, the shelter that I need. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says about Jerusalem, how I wish that I had gathered you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks. And then what do we see on the cross? But Jesus' outstretched arms. And if you need shelter today, if you need refuge, or if one day you will, we can find that shelter in the cross. Jesus said seven things when he was being crucified. And those are the things that I want to concentrate on today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Behold your son, behold your mother. I thirst and it is finished. The cross is both the means and the model for how we reconcile our faith in God and our suffering. Because in the cross, in the crucifixion of Jesus, we see the goodness of God. We see the goodness of God because by the cross we are given the spirit of God. So when I believe in Christ crucified, God gives to me his own spirit. So I am not alone when I am suffering. I have his strength. I have his power. I have his presence with me all the time. In Christ crucified, I'm welcomed into the family of God. I'm no longer just a wandering human being on planet earth. I am a son of God. You are a daughter of God. And he fathers us as he shepherds us through our pain. It's in Christ crucified that we receive eternal life. So no matter what is happening to us in this world, we can say our best is still to come. There's hope, there is light, there's justice on the other side because we have eternal life. And it's in Christ crucified that the works of the devil have been defeated. We can trace much pain and suffering in this world back to his works. He is the means, but he also becomes to us the very practical model for how we persevere in our suffering. That's what those early Christians believed. If you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, one of his disciples, Peter, writing to a church that is suffering, says this in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. If you remember from the 90s, the WWJD bracelet, some of you are not that old. You're like, I was in kindergarten in the 90s. Shut up. Um, we wore those bracelets to say, what would Jesus do? And what we meant was, you know, would, would Jesus kiss this person or not? Would he go see this movie or would he not? Would he use this curse word or would he not? But where this verse comes from, chapter 2, verse 21, it's saying that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example so you might follow in his steps. It's, it was originally written to 
Christians who were going to suffer because they were Christians. They were being pushed to the margins of society. They were being thrown in jail. They were being thrown in jail when they went to visit the other Christians who were thrown in jail. So he's talking to them about suffering. Christ suffered. He leaves us a path to follow. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Peter says, Christ is the model for how we suffer in this world. And then they live that out. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles have been arrested because they've been preaching about Jesus. The religious leaders, the powers that be, gather them together. They threaten them and they send them off. And in chapter 5, verse 41, it says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, Jesus' name. These early followers of Jesus were countercultural in the way that they viewed their own suffering. Why? Because Jesus left them a model, and his model is a model to us. You see in your listening guide, there are seven things that I hope we can remember. I believe if we practice these things, these don't answer every possible question and speak to every specific situation that you could find yourself in. But if we follow Jesus' steps... In his seven statements, it will help us reconcile our faith in God and our suffering. Number one, be honest with God with honesty anchored to the scripture. Be honest with God with honesty anchored to the scripture. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 And when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is being honest. God, I feel forsaken. But it's an honesty that's anchored to the scripture because he's quoting the opening line of Psalm chapter 22. The psalmist hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before, was experiencing something similar. God has forsaken me. I can't find God. I'm suffering and I am in pain and I'm looking for God and I cannot find him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we all want to know that why answer. God, why am I going through this? And there are reasons that we can give. Uh, We could say, because there's evil in the human heart, Because of sin. There is no depravity that will not find its way out of the human condition. You combine that with freedom to make choices in this world, it's no wonder there's so much suffering. You have evil hearts, free to express their evil. People are going to be hurt. You add on top of that that the scripture says even creation itself is groaning for redemption. Creation is weighed down by the burden of sin. It knows something is wrong and it is longing to be set free. Even our human bodies want something better. Our human bodies are broken. That's why there's cancer. That's why there's disease. That's why there's MD Anderson. That's why there's a medical center. 
And all of creation is looking for. You add on top of, of, of those things the reasons that Jesus was being crucified and he was suffering. First, Satan. The scripture says that Satan entered Judas and stirred up Judas to betray Jesus. As I mentioned, we can trace back to Satan so much evil and suffering in this world. But then it wasn't just Satan. It was the religious leaders who because of their greed, because they were power hungry, they wanted status quo in first century Jerusalem to stay because they benefited from status quo. They thought the ends justified the means and so they conspired to have Jesus crucified. Satan, the religious leaders, evil, and and then you mix in God's sovereignty. Ephesians chapter one says that you and I were chosen in Christ, crucified before the foundation of the world. So this was God's plan all along. And we think to ourselves, if we put all of those ingredients into the pot, the human condition, creation growing, Human free will, Satan, power, greed, God's sovereignty. If I put it all in there, turn it for my specific situation, ask God why, the answer will come out and it will make me feel better. And I can't speak for you, I can only speak for me, but knowing why has rarely taken the sting out of my suffering. There is no good answer to why there is evil in this world. So if we don't have answers, what do we have? We have a God who welcomes our honesty. Jesus, the son of God, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he wasn't just letting his feelings drive That honesty, it was tied to the scripture, to Psalm chapter 22, because our pain has a way of making us say things about God that are either not true or only half true. Like take, for example, this list I brought with me. This is a list of God's attributes from a classic book, The Nature of God by A.W. Pink. And I only use it today because I think it does a pretty exhaustive job of doing something impossible, which is helping define for us exactly what God is like. He can't be limited and he's definitely not limited by uh, contained in our English vocabulary. But this does a pretty good job of representing what the scripture tells us about God. And it's an exhaustive list, but not one of these things can describe God alone. God is supreme. He is sovereign, but he's also loving. God does have wrath, but he's also good. Not one of these things alone can describe God, but what our pain does is our pain narrows our list. Our pain makes us focus on just one of God's attributes. God, you said that you were good. God, I must be experiencing the pain that comes at the hand of your sovereignty. And we limit and we forget and our pain blacks out what God has provided for us in the gospel. Our pain makes us see just one thing and we forget all the things that God always is. That's why we want to tie our honesty to the scripture 
so that we don't plant seeds in pain that become weeds later on in our faith. In Psalm chapter 22, it starts by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But by verse 24, it says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So the psalmist starts out by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But by the end is saying, I, I know he, he, he hasn't. I know my face is not hidden from him. I know he sees the affliction with which I am being afflicted. We want to be honest. We want an honesty that's anchored to the scripture. Next, forgive. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Jesus forgives. There are, at least in my mind, four specific groups of people at the cross that he needed to forgive. We see three of them listed here in Luke chapter 23. First, there are the soldiers. Uh, They're not just doing their job. They're enjoying doing their job. They're casting lots for his garments. Uh, Which is essentially like they're flipping coins to see who will get to take... Jesus clothes home with them. And the reason they're doing that is because they know Jesus is not going to need them in a few hours because he's going to be dead. So they are delighting and taking advantage of his death. And on top of that, they're just mocking him. Jesus needs to forgive the rulers, the religious leaders. It was at their hands that this whole scheme was hatched. It was them that put pressure on Pilate to crucify Jesus when Pilate did not want to crucify Jesus. He didn't think Jesus had done anything wrong, but the rulers pressed and pressed and pressed and pressed. And so Pilate gave in. And here they are again, mocking him. If you're the Christ, if you're the son of God, Then there are the onlookers. It says the people stood by and watched. The Romans would crucify people on main arteries, on roads that would lead into a major city so that tourists coming in, travelers would come in, would see those people hanging on the crosses and think, I better mind my business here, mind my manners, be on my best behavior so that doesn't happen to me. The Romans used it as a statement and they would do their best to humiliate the person being crucified. And so tourists, as they're coming into Jerusalem, would just stop and watch people be crucified. Now, we would ideally like to think of ourselves as people who would not stop and gawk. But we do. When there's a wreck on the freeway, we're angry about it, number one. And then we look over to see who we should be angry about. And we kind of slow down to see what's going on. Last uh, two or three nights ago, uh, outside of my house, there was a police chase. And uh, we went out to the back fence and peered over to see what was happening. It's just human nature. And people did that when Jesus was being crucified 
just gawking at him while he died. Then there's a fourth group that, that is not there at the cross that Jesus needed to forgive, and that was his friends. The disciples had abandoned him. They feared for their own life, and so they left Jesus alone. I think forgiveness is... I don't think there's a harder thing to do in this world than to genuinely forgive someone. Because when we've been wronged, we were powerless. We were out of control. But that bitterness that we have towards that person who wronged us, it gives us, it restores to us that feeling of power and control. This is something I can determine. I have this against them. They did this to me. I have this against them. And to relinquish that feels very vulnerable and it feels very risky because it may put us in a position to be hurt again, which we don't want to be. So we hold on to our bitterness because it feels too costly to give it up. But Jesus was practicing what he preached. In Matthew chapter five, he said, pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies. And that's exactly what he was doing here. And if we want our faith and our pain to be reconciled, we also need to forgive. We need to forgive those who hurt us. We need to forgive those who did not hurt us, but have been insensitive to us in our pain. That happened to Jesus. He cries out, Eloi, Eloi. They misunderstood him. They said he's calling out for Elijah when he was quoting Psalm chapter 22, they misunderstood him. When we're in pain, people are going to misunderstand us. They're going to say things that are, are, are going to hurt us because they don't know what it's like to be in that situation. They may be trying to help or they may not be trying to help. And that is painful to us. But we need to forgive because lest an offense against us becomes our offense against God. You think, well, they have not even apologized. They don't even know or they know and they don't think they did anything wrong. Notice that Jesus does not talk to them. He talks to God. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Forgiveness is not primarily a work between you and another person. It is a work between you and God. And it's a hard work and it's a long work because forgiveness, at least for me, does not just happen one time. It happens every time I see that person. Every time that I remember. But if we want pain in our faith to find a way forward, we have to forgive like Jesus forgave. Number three, we need to remember the future. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do, not, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. One criminal raged at Jesus. Another one believed in Jesus. And to that one, Jesus says, here's our future. We're going to be in paradise, you and me together, later on today. 
He pointed them to the future. And when we're suffering, we, we need to remember the future. We need to be so confident in the future that the scripture reveals that we never forget it, even in the midst of our pain. And the church needs to be great at two R words. First, resurrection. The second, return. When we get together, whether in a large group like this or in a smaller group, we need to be reminding one another that Jesus was raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul says if Jesus was not raised from the dead, we are totally wasting our time this morning. I don't care how good the coffee is. It ain't that good to get out of bed and pretend that this is all real if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. But he has been raised from the dead. We believe that from history. We believe that from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be reminding each other that that is why we're here. That is why we are persecuted. Persevering. That is why we are being faithful because Jesus has been raised. But we also need to remind ourselves of the future that Jesus is returning. So there is an end to which we are being faithful. That things the way they are now are not the way they'll always be. That there is hope, there is restoration, there is renewal, that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We're all going to live together in unity. Jesus is going to be king. Everybody is going to see his kingdom. Our faith will be sight. This is what's coming. We need to be great at those two R words. So we're reminding ourselves of what happened and the future. So when we're suffering, we know that there is an end date. To that suffering. Next. We need to trust God with ourselves. We need to trust God with ourselves. It was now about the sixth hour. Verse 44. And there was darkness over the whole land. Until the ninth hour. And while the sun's lights failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus again quoting Psalm chapter 31 this time. That's why it's so important that you are digesting and ingesting the word of God, the scripture, on good days. So on the bad days, you have something to pull from. We do the opposite. When we're having a rough day, we'll scroll Instagram and look for an encouraging word. You, you know what that's like? That's like starving to death and cruising Costco for the samples. It tastes good and it makes you Imagine what the real thing would be like. But you need to be intaking the scripture today because who knows what you're going to need tomorrow. So out comes Psalm 31 verse 5 out of Jesus' lips. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As I mentioned, I'm a child of the 90s, hence the WWJD bracelets. And in the 90s, when you would go to a concert, they would have a mosh pit. I'm not sure that this is still a thing. Maybe it is. I'm old now. But back then, at a concert, there would be this group of people, always men, uh, who would think that it would be fun to listen to this music and push one another around. And depending on the type of concert, punch one another in the face. And so you would get in the mosh pit and you'd be pushing around. And the mosh pit is like fun for a few seconds and then you're like what this what am I doing 
and what's broken on uh, in the inside in, in my life that I feel like this is the way to enjoy music, right? <laughs> All week long, I've been thinking about what my suffering has looked like and what my pain has looked like. And there have been a few instances like this event happened. There definitely are a few of those, but more what resonated with me is when life feels like that mosh pit. I just feel pushed around and beat on. It's hard to compare that feeling to a story that is breathtakingly awful, but it is still the, the grind of suffering. And in those moments, you think, how did I get here? How did I get here? This is not where I wanted to be. This is not what I've chosen. This is not the marriage that I wished I had. This was not the job that I was thinking. I I didn't think that I would be unemployed at at this moment. I I didn't think my kids would be going through this. I thought I would be the exception. I don't know how I got here. There doesn't seem to be a way forward. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I, I trust you with myself. And then Jesus breathed his last. But the psalmist in Psalm 31, what the psalmist was saying is, this is me, this is my life, I put it into your hands. I trust you. And because you won't get a satisfactory answer to why is there suffering in the world and in my life, because you won't get that, there will have to be a moment where you say, I don't understand, but I'm going to trust you anyway. Or your faith and your pain can never live under the same roof. Next. You continue caring for others. How do I reconcile my faith and my pain? I continue caring for others. John chapter 19, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Historians tell us that when people were crucified, they would rage. And we see the criminal doing that one criminal believed in jesus the other mocked him and scorned him the scripture says he railed at him which makes a lot of sense i mean what do you do when you stub your toe you don't say oh bless me father thank you for this opportunity to remember your goodness in the middle of no you yell you scream some of you cuss some of us cuss i mean no i'm kidding yell out you're hurt You get mad, you get angry, you kick the thing that kicked you, right? (laughs) When you have a hard day at work, what's your natural instinct? It's to to be hard at home, to take that out on your family. You don't want to do that, but it's just natural. When we suffer, we rage. And so it makes sense that people crucifying would just get really angry. Being crucified would get really angry and they would yell and they would scream. They'd be mad at people. The criminal doesn't have any reason to be mad at Jesus, but he's suffering. He's in pain and he's taking this opportunity to just pass that on to somebody. But Jesus doesn't do that. He cares. And, And he looks out for his mom. Probably Jesus was the oldest in his family which meant he was responsible for his mother after Joseph's death. None of his brothers at this moment believe that Jesus is the Savior. And so he entrusts his mother to his friend, John. He says, will you look after her? 
Will you treat her as your own mother? Pain has a way of really shrinking our world. Where all we can think about is me and what I'm going through. But it's important if we want our pain and our faith reconciled that we keep on caring for other people. We keep on looking out for other people. And what's interesting is that the Corinthians were doubting the Apostle Paul's ministry. Like, should we listen to you? And you know what Paul lists as his resume for why they should believe him and practice what he's teaching? His pain. He says, I've been beaten this many times. I've been shipwrecked this many times. I've been stoned this many times. I've been whipped this many times. So even though we would say when we are suffering, I'm just not in the season to be serving people. It could be that that actually is your most effective season. Your testimony is never more credible than when it's currently happening. So keep on caring for other people. Next, let people help you. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. It is so simple, but Jesus needed something that he could not do for himself. He needed his mouth cleansed. He needed his mouth rinsed. He's getting ready to say something, his final word. And his mouth was parched, it was dry, and he wanted something to just swish around in there so that he could say what he finally had to say. So simple. There was a jar of sour wine there, which meant cheap wine, and they took a little bit on a sponge and in a branch, and they put it in his mouth. But there was something he needed that he couldn't do for himself. The scripture says that God is near the brokenhearted. And when we quote that scripture back to God in our suffering, what we are hoping is that he will come near in a very metaphysical, supernatural kind of way. And sometimes that does happen. Just an overwhelming sense of God's presence and his nearness and his goodness. And those are such powerful moments. But God is most near the brokenhearted through his people. So when you are hurting and other people come around you, that is God coming around you. When you are suffering and people show up with food, that's not their food. That's God's food. When they come and sit on your couch and they don't say anything, they're just there. God is there. Not giving you try answers. Just patiently sitting with you. Eight years ago, I spent a week in the hospital. My appendix exploded. That's the surgeon's word, not mine. So I'm, are, you, are, you, are you bragging? Yeah, I'm bragging. Right? <laughs> and so for a week, all that poison was just leaking out into my body. But I have such superhuman strength, like Batman or Superman, that I didn't even notice it. And uh, when I finally did, I, just kidding, I didn't notice it. But when I finally 
went to the hospital. They had surgery, but they didn't take out my appendix. It wasn't there anymore. It, what was left was this nasty, nasty, nasty infection. And so that's why I had to spend so long in the hospital. Normally, if your appendix uh, ruptures or it's what you get some ice cream and they send you home, not a, not a big deal. I was a little bit more complicated than that. And so the infection had made it really, really painful after surgery, but they want to get you up out of that bed as fast as possible so you can be walking so that everything can start to start working again. And, and so I remember my nurse, his name was Frank, and Frank and I would be wobbling down the hallway slowly, one foot shuffled in front of the other. And then after a few days, I started to get on, you know, a little bit stronger and I started moving a little bit faster and then I didn't need as much help. And, and so one day I was trying to get out of there because if you don't, if you haven't spent a, a few days in the hospital, after day four, there is this smell that descends on you that is ungodly. It is just, it is unnatural and it is ungodly. And I was tired of that. I couldn't wash it off for some reason. And so I needed to get home and I wanted to get out of there. And the first couple of days in the hospital, you're like, oh, this is nice. You know, it's, my life is not threatened. People are coming to visit me. They're sending me things. I'm going to be fine. But after a while, it's like, I need to get out of here. And so I'm trying to walk as fast and as much as possible so I can show to everybody, my surgeon, my doctor, I'm ready to go home. And so in the middle of one of my laps around the hospital floor, this nurse sees me and she starts screaming at me. What are you doing out of your room? What are you doing out here by yourself? Like, uh, I'm trying to go home. I smell. <laughs> she says, you got on yellow socks. And I looked down and I was like, yeah, these are the ones that you put on me while I was asleep. I woke up with these yellow socks on. You're not allowed to be out here with yellow socks on. These are the only socks I got says, yellow socks mean you can be out here with someone helping you. Gray socks mean you can be out here by yourself, but you're at fall risk. So as long as you got the yellow socks, you need to get back in your room. I was like, well, give me the gray socks. I Charge me $5,000, which I'm sure you're going to do because they're they passed through the insurance companies and got here somehow. The, the truth is, is all of us wish we had the gray socks in our pain. I got this. I'm strong enough. I'm man enough. I'm woman enough. I've been down this road before. I've been through it. I'm smart. I went to college. I've got resources. I've got means. I Nobody in the family of God wears gray socks. Everybody wears yellow socks. And when you refuse the help of God's people, you are refusing his help and you are making it harder for your pain and your faith to coexist in your life. Because it's in the people of God that you see the goodness of God. And finally, you persevere to the end. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished is different than I quit. It is finished as the marathoner running through the tape at the end of the race. I finished. 
Jesus said in John chapter 10, um, no one can take his life from him, but he lays it down and he has the authority to pick it back up again. And this is what he was saying. I'm laying my life down, even his wording, even the gospel's wording. And he gave up his spirit. It it, it makes it sound like a choice that Jesus made. It is finished. And he gave up his spirit. There are so many people in this world who grew up in church and When they say, you know, I don't go anymore and you ask them why, they say, well, because this happened to me and this happened to me and this happened to me and this happened to me. So I quit. But Jesus has left us an example so that we can follow in his steps. So if he didn't quit when he suffered... We are not going to quit when we suffer. If he made it to the end of his race, then we're going to make it to the end of our race. There is no unanswered question in this world that can take your faith from you. You get to decide. when you're done and he wasn't done until it was done so Jesus we thank you we thank you that you've left us a model we pray that we would follow in your steps in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand? I'm going to ask our prayer folks to come and take their places here in the front. We're going to pray together for just a little bit. If you're a guest with us, we finish all of our servings, services by praying for one another. And I want to invite you to come and pray for whatever it is that is on your mind today. If you're worried about anything, come and pray. But specifically, I want to invite you to come and pray today. If you're like that thief on the cross and you say, I need to turn to Jesus. That's what I need. I need to turn to Jesus. I've been turning a lot of different ways, but I'm believing in Jesus today. Then you come. I want to invite you to come and pray today. If you've not ever been honest with God, you thought the goal was just to sort of present the church version of you to God. But that's come at the expense of your genuine faith. So come and pray. Come and be honest. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Come and pray. If if you care about somebody else today and you're not praying for you, but you're praying for them, you come and pray for them. And finally, if you could just use a good dose of perseverance, just good old-fashioned, I'm going to make it, but I could use some help. And you come and ask God for it. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Would you do them for us? Amen. So let's, uh, let's pray. As God stirs your heart, you don't hesitate to come.